Welcome to the Why It Works podcast. I'm Joe Kwan, your host. Together, we'll pull back the curtain to reveal the hidden principles behind why things work. Things work for a reason. Let's find out why. Here with us today is Mario McCracken. He is the revenue leader at Move Medical, where he leads the sales, marketing, and customer success efforts. He is a voracious reader and is passionate about driving organizational and individual growth. We speak to Mario from California as he wraps up the final leg of a whirlwind business trip. Welcome to the Why It Works podcast, Mario, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Joseph. I'm really excited to be on this podcast with you. So uh, there's something I wanted to share with our audience. I, I, I noticed that you've been writing uh, pretty much on a daily basis, and I think you had even posted something about why you were doing that. Can you yeah. share a little bit about what that journey's been like? Yeah, it's been a really fun journey, actually. So I started writing actually like on a blog and just like sharing some ideas of what I've been learning from the books I've been reading in 2013. And then I started doing it more officially on LinkedIn in the end of 2014. And then I read an article by Glenn Leibowitz, who works for Goldman Sachs, but also mm-hmm. has an ink has an column. And he said, in order to really become a writer and to really share your ideas, you need to write something every single day. So I took that to heart, and I decided to write every single day for 2017. And I did. And so I wrote some small little blog post every single day for 2017. I've just continued it now for 2018. So since January 1st, 2017, I've published something every single day. Wow. So how did that feel? Did you, did you feel some change happening or some realization well, while you were doing that? Yeah. Well, over time I did for sure. Sometimes it was, initially it was kind of like, what am I going to write about? But right, right. I realized, so it was kind of hard at first. Or it, was, it was difficult, but I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to ask myself every single day, what did I learn today? Or what did I have I learned in the past 24 hours from the time when I last wrote? And then it was super easy to write stuff. And then, because if I learned it, then somebody else might be able to benefit from it. And then we could all learn together, right? So then it became super easy. And I noticed a few things um, over a, a long-term change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I never was a planner to begin with. So I'm very fly by the seat of my pants. I'm not necessarily that worried about the future. Okay. But I noticed when I started writing down, I became a lot more peaceful and less stressed. So even though I always didn't plan very well, I noticed inner peace more so than before. And that might be from lots of factors, but I really think just writing what I've been learning helps me to internalize and process the things that I'm going through. And so it was a, it's been a great process. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. I was, I was so curious about that. So it's interesting to learn that extra little bit. Uh, let's get to know you a little bit better. Uh, please tell our audience what you do, but break it down as if you were explaining it to a five-year-old. Okay, so the basic to a five-year-old would be I sell stuff. <laughs> so, Done. What do, I, what do I sell, though? Um, so our company helps mm-hmm. medical device manufacturers know where their stuff is. Okay. So it helps them know where their inventory is, and then from there they can do lots of things with it. Because when you know where your stuff is, then you can use it, right? And so when you can use it the right way, then it becomes valuable to you. And so that's kind of what we do as a, we're an app that helps medical device companies know where their stuff is. Okay, great. Excellent. So I am so happy to have you here with us today, and I'll tell you why. Um, I admittedly uh, have a beginner's perception 
of sales. And uh, I'll share with you a, a quick example of sort of how clueless I am that's not related to sales, but it'll, <laughs> it'll show you by analogy. So I remember uh, many, many, many years ago before I was, you know, in corporate America, I was talking to my friend's fiance and I asked her what she did. And she said, she's a project manager. And I said, what's a project manager? She said, well, you know, people are doing different things. I make sure everything gets on time. And, you know, I organize all that and, you know, keep everything flowing and call meetings. And I, I, I thought to myself, so you don't actually have any technical specialty expertise yourself. You're just kind of pulling together the other people. And it, it seemed odd to me because I just, I was so clueless about it. And, and as I gained more experience, I realized, oh my God, how are we going to do this without a project manager? <laughs> so I kind of feel like, you know, I, I'm at that level with, with understanding sales as well. So, you know, I, I feel so lucky to have a, an expert like yourself uh, talk to us a little <laughs> bit about it. Um, so my first question to you great story, is, <laughs> yeah, my first question is, what are some uh, misconceptions that people might have about what sales is? Well, I guess the biggest is sales is sleazy, right? That's, the, that's the, the biggest misconception. And, and any profession can be that way if it's approached that way, right? It just depends mm -hmm. on the mindset of the receiver and the mindset of the giver. Okay. So sales, in the, in, in, the, in the big scheme of things, if it's done right, is about helping. Okay. If you're helping someone get what they want and need, then you're doing sales the right way, and then it won't feel sleazy, it won't feel bad, it won't feel negative, it won't feel pushy. The problem is when it's crossed that line because people do what – people's behavior is based on the rewards that they receive. Mm. So when salespeople are rewarded for behavior that might be bad, they're going to do that behavior for the reward. And so often that's where that impression of sales has come from is, they're rewarded to make the sale at all costs. And so they're yep. going to do that to get the sale. And so it just depends on the environment of both and the mindset and the attitude of the person doing the selling, but also the person approaching the situation. You often get what you perceive or what you think about is what, you, what will happen in your life. So it goes both ways. But yeah, it can, it's definitely that sales is not necessarily seen as something as a true profession or as real or as productive or... Uh, yeah, just not seen as upper quality work. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's very interesting what you said about the kind of incentive nature, right? So it's yeah. it's like you you've almost created this condition where you've prompted people maybe to do things that 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 aren't as helpful, and and because you've set it up that way, yeah. uh, it's, it's it's pretty interesting. And I think that's probably something that you know someone with your expertise you you think about those different structures and incentive ways to plan them that can, you know, really overall help people rather than just help yourself. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's 100% right. If you can find a way that everybody benefits from the situation, mm -hmm. and that's almost in any job you do, you want to be doing that, whether you're in human resources, project management, or whatever you're doing, if the outcome is that all parties benefit and gain, then it's mm -hmm. going to turn out well. It's just in sales, you're thinking that it's adversarial where you have one side against another side where you mm -hmm. have to sell into an account or you you have a sales plan and it's an attack and all these things but that's not really what sales is about sales is about helping someone get what they want and need and if you do that the right way it can be very rewarding and very challenging at the same time but it's a very worthwhile thing to do okay great and i believe you and i'll tell you why i'm going to share with you a story uh of my encounter with an amazing salesperson during my honeymoon with my wife in Tahiti. 
Uh, and so we go, we went to these different pearl kind of jewelry shops to pick up a memento of our honeymoon. You know, I figured we're probably not going to be back here anytime soon. It's, it's a big splurge for our honeymoon. So we're going to a various different places and they're all kind of doing the same thing. We walk in, they offer us water, they work with us on the price range. You know, they educate us a little bit about the project, but there was this one guy, his name was Philippe. And he did things that no one else did. And I knew within five minutes, I was either going to buy something from this guy for my wife or leave with the worst newlywed husband of the year award. <laughs> so Philippe, and I'm not even sure if that's his name, but I, I'm, I'm just going to say it's Philippe. And we walk in and he calls himself, you know, he, he's not selling pearls. He's a dream maker. Right. So I knew I was in trouble as soon as he said that. And then so what he would do is, you know, he, he helped my wife pick out the setting or, or the necklace that she wanted. And, you know, she put it on. And then what he would do is as she would pick out different pearls, you know, he would pick them up with the with the wooden tongs and he would kind of hold them like in the setting where they would be, you know, when you were wearing them and had a mirror so she could see it and she could kind of move around in the light and see how it would look. And then I just knew, I was like, we're going to have to buy something from this guy. And, you know, frankly, I was kind of glad to give the guy, you know, the money because I knew we'd be satisfied because I really yeah. felt like, you know, he was going above and beyond and really educating us in a very practical way. So I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what made Philippe so effective? Yeah, so he did a lot of good things there, of course. So in that situation where he was approaching you, he right away set the stage by announcing what he did. So mm -hmm. instead of announcing what he actually did, I don't sell pearls, right? Mm -hmm. He was saying what your end result would be. And he's ah. a dream maker. So he was putting, instead of making himself the hero, he made you the hero right away. Your dreams are going to come true because of him. So he's kind of like your guide in the hero journey. He was the guide to help you accomplish your dream. So it had nothing to do with, oh, I sell pearls. It was right. all about you place the effort off him onto you and then he allowed you to see that or your wife to see that by positioning her in a position where she could see the end result. So he said what he was going to do and showed it to you. And so he was just basically future pacing as they call it in NLP, but he was future pacing you and your wife to say, Hey, this is what's going to happen. And now I'm going to show you how it's happening, right? You're seeing yourself in this mirror and you're, you want this, right? Because this is how good you look. Like. So yeah, he, he did a great job. So I never heard that term future pacing. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is? So future pacing is basically anytime you say, hey, imagine this. You're just basically helping people create a vision of the future. So ah. psychiatrists do it or th therapists do it or different. There's lots of different ways you can use future pacing. But it's basically allowing someone to picture a future state. And it can be negative or positive depending on how you do it. But by picturing a future state, you can create that event in their mind and so then it becomes more real and then they're more likely to take action on it oh i see so your imagination your your, your emotions kind of it activates that and it takes you For to sure. that place oh yeah. okay very yeah. very interesting okay so next i want to share with you uh the final sales scene uh in the movie in good company where the seasoned sales guy dennis quaid drops some knowledge you know on the young guy topher grace here we go you have a really awesome company here. You, it's a really awesome, awesome. Your boss. He looks more like your nephew. <laughs> yeah. I've uh, certainly been learning a lot from Dan. So. So whatever you're, I. 
That's one of the things he learned from me. <laughs> Are you saying that you punched him in the eye? Why? Well, it's we don't have to really go into it here. No, no, so. no, 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 please, please. I'm, I'm, I'm rather curious. Why did I hit you? He called me a dinosaur, said I was out of date, thought I'd better step in line. So you slugged him? It was a fair fight. Hmm? Right. Mr. Kalb, we have a sister company, Crispity Crunch, that I think we could do a really exciting cross-promotion with here. All in the Carter, Globecom Carter, family. I think Carter, that we could achieve... Carter, it's we okay. Mr. Kalb, I don't want to get into facts and figures with you today. You know them already. I just want to ask you one question. What is your hesitation about advertising with Sports America magazine? My hesitation is that our ad budget is already overextended. My son-in-law has put a lot of money into cable and online. And now he wants to plow even more money back into it. But... But what? But he is such an asshole. I mean, I built this business. I know more about running this than he ever will. So yeah, I'm going to make a major ad buy in your magazine. And then I'm going to restructure the whole damn ad campaign. That is great oh. news. Thank you, Mr. Cal. Thank Yes. Thank you so much, sir. You know, I don't give a shit about Crispity Crunch. Let's just stick with the magazine, okay? Oh my god. Oh my god, that was amazing! That was unbelievable! God, that was actually fun! What Cap really needed to see was a wolf fart beat the crap out of a young punk half his age. You know what the best thing is? It's the right thing to do. We'll improve his business. Mario, what's going on here? Well, there's two very important things that, that I noticed and I remember from that movie. So the older salesman and the younger salesman had, he had to show them that he connected with the buyer, right? The person who's making the buying decision. The buyer had a problem with his son coming in and making all these changes, taking control and kind of trying to run the company and telling, basically saying to his father, you know, you're out of date, you're out of business, you're, you're old school, you're too old fashioned, right? And he didn't like that feeling. He didn't like feeling disempowered. So the sales guy had to show him that he understood what he was going through, that he was in the same position, that this young sales guy was telling me that I'm a dinosaur, so I had to put him in his place. Mm -hmm. But first, he showed him that it's okay to put somebody in their place and to make a decision on your own. The second was, he asked a question that led direct to the point. Instead of just trying to show up and throw up as they do in sales, where they just show all these stats and figures and ideas, they just ask the, the person making the buying decision, you know, what's it going to take for us to work together or what's stopping you from making this decision? And just ask them point blank. He was able to express, talk. He saw the connection that he said, hey, you know, I'm not just an old dinosaur. I can make decisions. I can do things. And he connected with them. And then they went through and made the, made the sale. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. He, he connected and in a way that kind of helped the person sort of make that decision and, and do kind of probably what they wanted to do all along. But for yeah. whatever reason, they didn't feel the uh, maybe the confidence or the the drive to do it until he had that connection with the, you know, with, with, with the Dennis Quaid character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, next I want to share with you uh, a quick clip of something that's uh, very near and dear to my heart, much to my wife's chagrin. It's an <laughs> infomercial. <laughs> 
and I'm not sure why I'm such a sucker uh, for these. Um, this one happens to be ShamWow of uh, this Vince of, of ShamWow fame. Um, and let me cue this up for you. And I would love to get your uh, input on this. Hi, it's Vince with ShamWow. You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. It's like a chamois, it's like a towel, it's like a sponge. A regular towel doesn't work wet. This works wet or dry. This is for the house, the car, the boat, the RV. ShamWow holds 12 times its weight in liquid. Look at this, it just does the work. Why do you want to work twice as hard? Doesn't trip, doesn't make a mess. Bring it out, you wash it in the washing machine. Made in Germany, you know the Germans always make good stuff. Here's some cola. Wine, coffee, cola, head stains. Not only is the damage gonna be on top, there's your mildew. That is gonna smell. Look at this, put on the spill, turn it over. Without even putting any pressure, 50% of the cola right there. You following me, camera guy? The other 50%, the color starts to come up. No other towel is going to do that. It acts like a vacuum. And look at this, virtually dry on the bottom. I can't live without it. I just love it. Oh my gosh, I don't even buy paper towels anymore. If you're going to wash your cars or any kind of vehicle, you'd be out of your mind not to own one of these. All I can say is sham. Wow. That's a, that's a great infomercial for sure. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you, why do these low-budget, arguably cheesy commercials work so well on me, Mario, and please be gentle. <laughs> no, they work on everybody. That's why they do them. And they work because you're getting the pleasure without the pain. That's, okay. that's how all of these short sales cycle marketing campaigns work. And they work because, so take another example of, of diet. Eat, lose the weight without cutting calories, you know? Okay. Lose the weight while still being able to eat pizza. This was have a clean house without spending a fortune or be able to clean a mess without the pain of having to use tons of paper towels, right? So the basic psychology is you get the reward without the pain. So, and then they just played on to the common everyday problem and he connected with the, everybody spills stuff. Mm -hmm. And so you're getting, you're getting the pleasure without going through the effort and the work. And so he just shows you very excited about it. And you can do that in simple products. In complex products, it's very hard to do that. It's so, to, do, to be so over the top and cheesy, as you might call it, right? But mm -hmm. in simple products, it's okay to be cheesy because the solution is simple, the idea is simple, and the end result is very simple as well. So it's very easy to, it's, it's more, much more acceptable to be cheesy. And the reason they have to talk so loud is because they're interrupting your day and interrupting your life, and they want you to stop at that infomercial when you could be watching 400 other channels, right? So, and it's maybe two in the morning when you're watching it, so they have to grab your attention right away. You might be half asleep. So they have to be loud. They have to be over the top anyway. But on top of that, it's, it's a very simple process of pleasure without pain. And hmm. whatever it happens to be, that's what they're doing. Pleasure without pain. Huh, I like that. And, and reward uh, without work, right? Reward without work. Reward without the work, right? So... Now, you, you mentioned something else in your comments um, about it being a short sales cycle. What, yeah. what did you mean by that? And what sort of the, I, I would assume there's a difference with a long sales cycle. Could you explain a little bit more about that, how that works? Yeah, so the, the cycle is they can make a decision instantly and buy the product right now. So they can make the decision. Anybody watching the commercial, even a high school kid, could probably get on the phone, get out a debit card, credit card, and make the purchase immediately. 1999. <laughs> exactly. There's no conferring. There's no decision-making process. There's no bringing in other people to help them make a decision. 
There's no checking, will this work with my current process? Will this fit into my kitchen? Everybody knows that it works for everybody. It's for everybody. All you have to decide is do I want it or do I not want it? And then it's a simple decision. Whereas a long sales cycle, it can vary from a week, two weeks, and those are often still in business to business sales, at least considered short sales cycles, up to two-year sales cycle where it could take hundreds of decision makers getting on a phone for, uh, for 200 different demos over a two-year sales cycle. And then by the end, you finally get around to a consensus and a decision. So it can vary in length, but the simpler the product and the simpler the overall process is to implement that product, the shorter the sales cycle. So how does that change things if you're the type of salesperson who's in a longer sales cycle? How might that affect your, your approach or your overall sort of strategy in, in terms of selling something over a year or two? Because that to me seems you know, an, an incredible investment of time. It is. And it's a very, very different approach. It's, it, you're not talking about functions anymore. You're not talking about functionality. That's just the basic bare necessities to get your foot in the door is your, 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 your product has to be able to function, right? Mm-hmm. After that, it's more about what kind of insights or what kind of clarity, what kind of advice can you bring to the table that will help my, me implement this solution and help this solution win over your competitors. And that's where it takes a lot of time to build those relationships of trust. And it's not, you're not building a relationship to be buddy-buddy and go to a baseball game. You're building a relationship based on, hey, my insights and the knowledge I bring can help you solve whatever problem you have. And more on top, more than just solving the problem that you have, there's new opportunities that you can capture because of this product. And that's where real value comes in. It's not just solving problems, but it's finding unknown opportunities for the future. Oh, which would make sense because you're spending so much time with them. You're getting to know their business so much more, more intimately. Yeah. You really, it's, you know, it's not a, a legal word, but you're, it's becoming more of a partnership between the yeah. uh, vendor and, and the company rather than a, a, a quick, you know, you need a pen, here's a pen, or you need uh, some, exactly. toilet paper or some toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, it's much less transactional and much more partnership-based, if possible, right? The yeah. goal is to make it partnership-based, but lots of companies are trying to reduce that and make it more companies. Their job is to spend as little as possible, right? Right. And rely on outside vendors as little as possible. And in order to make that happen, you have purchasing departments and you try to make everything commoditize it. Whereas the end users often though want that partnership and they want that relationship because they feel and they know that their challenges might be unique. Even if they're in the same industry, they feel they might have unique challenges and their challenges have to be solved with a partner who understands them. So it's navigating all those different situations is what makes complex sales or long-term sales often so tricky and different than short sales cycles where one person can get on the phone and just make a decision. Yeah. And, and it sounds pretty interesting that, you know, in, in, in companies perhaps that are a little bit more sophisticated about it, you know, there's a, there's a management to, you know, what the business needs to the sales, to the users, like all of that, if that's aligned to really deliver, what's needed, that, that would seem to work better. But I think we all know any, any of us who work in large companies, often people are working in silos and have somewhat conflicting agendas so things can get out of whack. Yeah, yeah. When the rewards, you do what gets rewarded, like we talked about earlier. So your behavior is based on incentives. And so if purchasing departments, their job is just to lower cost. Mm-hmm. But if lowering cost means that the operations team that's going to be using the product doesn't get as good of a product, Right. And the team using the product loses, but operation, the purchasing just won. So it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a, so often it's a constant battle 
internally yeah. to even get the best decision. And that's where people who are actually, who excel in sales are able to figure out what their competing priorities are, balance right. those and help people come to the same page to figure out what's best for everybody involved. Yeah. And, and that's so much more than just figuring out how to get someone to say yes or, or sign on the dotted line. I think it's a much more sophisticated kind of approach yeah, um, for sure. sales management. Yeah, so exactly. Let me ask you, um, what's your perspective on the differences in maybe type of sales? You know, a lot of people stereotypically think of sales as like you might encounter like a car salesman, right? But we've also been talking about, you know, corporate sales. In your experience, and I'm sure you've, you've bought a car and then you work in, you know, corporate sales, what are some of the similarities and, and differences, if any, uh, between those two worlds? So the, the number one similarity, I think, is the person who asks the best questions usually wins. What does that mean? So if you're buying a car mm -hmm. and you, you deep down know what you want as in a car. But if the salesperson doesn't ask you the right questions, you might never tell them because you might not be, uh, if you're a guarded person or you don't want to tell them everything, you just tell them, oh yeah, I'm looking for a truck. But really you're not necessarily looking for a truck. You just want a vehicle to haul your boat. And so an SUV would do, and you also have six kids. So an SUV would be much better than a truck, but you told the salesperson you want a truck. Uh-huh. Well, that you have six kids and you actually need the room to haul those people and the truck so he doesn't even know an SUV would work. So he spends two hours trying to sell you a truck and you <laughs> think about it, you sleep on it, and then you go home and the next guy asks you, so what else are you going to be using this truck for? And he's like, oh, I have a big family. And then you tell him, he says, okay, well, this is better than a truck. And then you buy the SUV. So, and that's even in a short sales cycle, which is buying a car, which is pretty short. And so whoever asks the better questions usually wins. And everybody wins when the salesperson wins in that type of environment. And that goes in complex sales, simple sales. So the similarity is if you can ask the right, if you can ask the right questions, mm -hmm. you can build the right type of relationship to offer the right type of advice. And the right advice with insights usually can close a sale. Okay. And um, what are some differences perhaps uh, between those types of uh, corporate versus car sales? Most of the time, the people you're talking to aren't the decision makers in long-term sales. Oh, I see. So I see. you can ask all the right questions, convince everybody, but then you need to do it over again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And then you have to coach them on how to ask the right questions to their boss so they can get permission to talk to us. And there's just, it's just a lot longer process of getting to the right person. And then often in, in major complex sales, there's lots of times when you never even talk to the real decision maker because they have their, like if it's the CEO of a company and the CFO that make the final decision, you might only talk to the VPs. And the VPs say, oh yeah, it's my decision. They make the initial decision, but they still have to get a sign-off from the CFO. And that final sign-off, you might have to coach your VP on how to get that sign-off. So there's lots of different, the, the, those, that's where the difference is coming. It's more in the politics and the final procedures than the actual process itself. Yeah. So something you're saying is, is so interesting to me. You know, it's, it's, it's not just getting the person who's in front of you to understand that, you know, that you're helping them and that they want or, or could benefit from what you have. There's this whole other layer of understanding how the organization works, how the approval might, approvals might work, who else might need to approve, who might want to shoot it down and how to, I mean, it, it's much more sophisticated than just convincing the person who, the, the guy or gal who might be right in front of you, it sounds like. Exactly. 
Yeah, there's so many different users or maybe you only have one user of your system. So getting the person that's going to benefit the most from your system, it's easy to sell them. They mm -hmm. see the benefits and they see the value immediately. But getting sign-off, yeah, you have to. there's a lot of internal politics where you might be replacing a system that a different executive put in and so their feelings will get hurt if you replace their baby, right? Or you're calling their baby ugly by saying this system, <laughs> right? So there's lots of, you, you have to understand the politics, you have to understand the sign-offs, you have to understand the processes. There's so many variables at play and no situation is that different. So following an exact playbook isn't always going to work. What you do is you have scenarios that you prepare for, but it's really about being adaptable. Hmm. Okay, great. Well, let me share with you um, something a little bit more fun, maybe a little bit more fantastic uh, and get your input on this one. General. Welcome, Mr. Stark. I look forward to your weapons presentation. Is it better to be feared or respected? I say, is it too much to ask for both? With that in mind, I humbly present the crown jewel of Stark Industries Freedom Line. It's the first missile system to incorporate our proprietary repulsor technology. They say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. That's how Dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. Find an excuse to let one of these off the chain, and I personally guarantee you the bad guys won't even want to come out of their caves. Your consideration, the Jericho. So for those who <laughs> may not be familiar with that scene from the movie, the, the, the missile goes off and, and just the impact just, just blows everyone back, blows people's hats off. There's smoke and it's just an incredibly kind of uh, in, in impressive display of, uh, of uh, armament. So, you know, I imagine a, a lucrative sale happened there. What was, what was going on with this demonstration? What were some of the principles underlying, you know, why this might be impressive to uh, to the generals and the military folks there. So he did a couple of things. He set the stage by playing into their their pride and their ego by saying, you know, this is the way it has to be done. This is the way we do it. We're strong. We're powerful. He he played them up, telling them how good they are. Then he showed them. Then he told them that one of their ways of thinking is wrong, and there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. But instead of saying, hey, you're wrong because you think the best weapon is something you never have to fire. He put it out there as more common knowledge and a quote and a saying. And then he contradicted it by saying, no, that's not true. The best weapon is one you only have to fire once. So in, in let's say, business-to-business -business sales, you do that all the time. They have a certain way of thinking, and you don't want to go in there and tell them they're 100% wrong. Mm -hmm. Often, they don't want to be told they're wrong. No. But you say, you know what? I empathize with you. This is the way that the industry has always done it, and this is currently the best practice. But then you say, what if there was a better way? Or what if? And you paint that picture for them. And then you show them that better way. What if you didn't always, when email first came out, imagine not having to print memos and then send them out to everybody's desk. 
imagine those type of things. And when people started doing it, they saw a better world and they did it. And so he painted a picture for them and then he showed it to them. He showed them what they were, what the possibility was. And it might not be exactly applicable to their situation. They might never have to fire a rocket that lets off like 300 different missiles at the same time, right? But the idea was there, hey, we used to think this way, but now because of what he showed us, we can think another way. And so even though the situation was fantastical and it was a little over the top, that's almost the feeling you want to go for every time. That's where providing insights comes in. You want them to be blown away, literally. You want them to be saying, well, I didn't know that was possible. If you can come away with a client meeting saying, hey, I didn't know that was possible, then, then you've shown them something they didn't believe before, but now they do. And that's changing their belief system. And when you change someone's belief system, then you can hopefully, when you change it, you change it to the system that you're trying to help them get into or the, the new solution that you're hopefully helping them solve their current problems with a new solution. Right. And, and something implicit, I think, in, in what you're saying is, you know, when you're changing the, your, their belief system and it's, it's in a way that kind of helps them more than they even realize they, they could be helped. It kind of like was like, wow, I thought we could just do this and, and now we can do this and this and this and, and it's going to be great for us. I mean, it's, it's, it's really has that kind of collaborative feeling like this is the person who helped me understand, you know, additional possibilities. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's okay. 100% right. You can, you can, if, if you can become that person that gives them new insights, they're going to trust you. And when they yes. trust you, then you can help them solve problems and then capture new possibilities, yes. capture new opportunities. But you first have to show them something, right? You have to prove yourself first. You can't just say, oh, because I'm a nice guy and I'm honest, you're going to trust me. No, you have to be over the top in a sense that you're better than anything else they could possibly choose. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of the concepts that I'm picking up from you that are, that are so important, I think, is, you know, there's that initial connection, you know, with, with the client. It's the building of the trust. It's, it's helping them imagine what's possible. And then, of course, you know, to use a cliche, the proof is in the pudding, right? Like, like the stronger proof you can bring to the table, you know, the, the, the less they have to imagine, or the more their imagination can run wild with, with the possibilities. Exactly, yeah. So uh, one, one of the concepts that, that I had learned about in sales and just from, you know, reading things is this whole concept of uh, reciprocity, right? If you, if you, if someone, you know, gives something to you, you kind of feel indebted, you want to give something back to them. And it doesn't even have to be a big thing. It could be like a very small thing, like holding open the door or offering a glass of water, you know, sort of what are your thoughts on the role of reciprocity in sales and, and, and how that plays into, you know, relationship building? So I see some good and bad in reciprocity. I think it's a lot more powerful in people you have close relationships with already Mm -hmm. than you don't have close relationships with. Because if you're trying to sell into someone and let's say you're trying to break into an account that you've been trying to do for a long time and you give them a gift, they'll see right through that. They'll see that it's superficial. Oh, he's just giving me this so he can sell me, right? So it's not necessarily a good thing. Where reciprocity really works though is once you have that initial contact, that initial relationship, and because you always respond to your phone calls that they call you, you call them back within 30 minutes every time they leave you a voicemail, then they're going to reciprocate that action and always call you back, right? So it depends on how you use it, and it really works well internally and with people you work with every day on a daily basis. And so when you're in the sales cycle of an 18-month sales process, then that reciprocity is really big and really important. 
Um, but at the beginning of a relationship, that's often where sales might seem sleazy or disingenuous. Uh-huh. And they use that too early in the process. I see, I see. So timing, you oh, know, yeah. the, the intent, the, the, the authenticity yeah. of the person, I, I feel that's, that's key. And, you know, one interesting thing is, you know, uh, I'm not talking about salespeople in general, but just as human beings, we kind of, most of us have this sort of very sensitive radar and we don't always listen to it, but I feel like we've evolved to kind of know when things are genuine and yeah. when things are fake, and, and even if, if not consciously, we don't know it, like almost subconsciously, there's something like your spider senses are going off. Yeah, and like exactly. Something is not quite right. I, I don't know. Um, so I feel like when you become more formulaic, and, and I know you're totally against that sort of thing uh, in this sort of situation, that's when that inauthenticity or the poor timing, I feel you're more susceptible to getting that reaction. Exactly. No, you're 100% right. And people can tell. So you just have to be yourself and you have to really care about them. And when you care about someone, the same action can be interpreted different ways based on your intent. And so as long as your heart's in the right place, you can do a lot of things. You can open a lot of doors. So Mario, I, I know you spend a lot of time training other salespeople and, and to the point you were just making, you know, have you sometimes seen the shift where people you're training kind of get that, you know, like, 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 like they kind of move from that, like transactional scripted kind of way of thinking about sales to, to understanding like, wow, you know, I just really have to be me and I have to connect with the person. What is that like? Um, well, that's a good question. I want to come back to that. But the harder shift though, is even though they're not supposed to be scripted and formulaic, okay. the problem is in sales, you want to be authentic and you want to be yourself. But lots of people try to start with that before they add any value mm-hmm. and they never get to the point where they can add value. So you have to first train salespeople on adding value first and then retrain them into being themselves and not being just doing everything by a formula because they have to start with the formula. They have to find a way to add some type of insight, but then they take that too far and think everything then is a formula and everything is exactly predictable. Well, that's not necessarily the case. You have a sales cadence maybe that you try to follow, but you still have to be authentic. But the reverse right now in most sales training that we do and with most salespeople is the opposite. They think, oh, I have to be myself. I have to be authentic. So I'm not going to follow the script. I'm not going to follow this words to say. But what they're missing is the words you say are super important. And if you don't say the right words at the beginning, if you're not giving value to the buyer at the very, very beginning, they're not going to talk with you. So there's no way for you to be yourself. And so it's almost a retraining. You have to train them on how to use a script. And then you train them not to use the script. It, it's it's a very um, interesting process to go through for sure. Yeah, I, I I think that probably applies to a lot of things where you know you learn something to get a certain level of proficiency, but then if you stop there, that actually starts to hurt you. You you almost have to break that down and then learn something else on top of it. But like you said, you have to do it in stages. You, you, you can't do it all at once. It's, it's, it's too much. So Exactly. No, that's 100% right. Just like in sports or in any skill that you're learning, you have to have the foundations before you can freestyle, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I imagine it's a, it's a, it's a journey, right? It's, it, it's not like a one-day seminar. I mean, this occurs over repetition and months and, and years of just doing it over and over and you, you start yeah. to maybe understand more subtly, you know, the dynamics. Yeah. There, there's an author from the 1700s. I can't remember his name, 
Oh, um, but anyway, he says most learning is not actually learning. It's remembering. And so that's true in sales. Most sales training and most sales literature, all of it has already been written. There's nothing new out there. Okay. The difference is you remember what you're supposed to do. Do you remember how you're supposed to act? And no, most of the time we forget things. We've heard it before, but we forget. So most good training is really just reteaching stuff somebody's already learned or something they should have already learned. And so most learning is remembering, not learning. So how do you get to the remembering? Is it, is it through repetition or? Just through repetition and hearing it over and over again. Just yeah. like with little kids, no matter how many times you tell them to be kind, there's times when they're not going to be kind to their friends. Like you tell your two-year-old, don't bite your friends. And then the next week they go bite their friends again. You're like, yeah, I told you that last week, right? You have to keep reminding them to not bite their friends. Yeah. And it's the same in sales. You have to, and in any pr- profession, you just have to keep rem- reminding people, hey, you learned this before, but you're not applying it today. Because we don't always apply everything we don't know. And that's the same in anything we do. But the, the trick is if the more you can remember to do the right thing, the more likely you are to find the success that you're looking for. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in, in that. And, you know, one area that I've become more interested in lately is, is just training in, in general, obviously not training in sales, but maybe more training in leadership type skills. And, you know, I've taken so many great classes, at, you know, uh, great companies with, with top trainers. But at the end of the class, you're not a significantly better leader, negotiator, debater, whatever it is you're being trained on. It's, it just kind of like plants the seed for you. But if you don't practice those skills yeah. and repeat them over and over, you can't expect to learn it in, in four hours or eight hours or however long the training is. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. I agree hundred percent. You have to practice every single day. Every single day you have to be out there practicing. Or write every single day. Or write every single day. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the practice part, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Every single day. All right, so let me show you uh, one last uh, example and to get your insight on the realism of it. Um, Admittedly, this is very, uh, this is sort of a stereotype of sales, but I still want to get your uh, insights. Okay. Hello, John. How are you doing today? You mailed in my company a postcard a few weeks back requesting information on penny stocks that had huge upside potential with very little downside risk. Does that ring a bell? Oh, yeah, I may have said Okay, great. Well, reason for the call today, John, is something just came across my desk, John. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. You got a minute? Name of the company, Aerotine International. It is a cutting-edge, high-tech firm out of the Midwest awaiting imminent patent approval on a next generation of radar detectors that have both huge military and civilian applications. Now, right now, John, the stock trades over the counter at 10 cents a share. And by the way, John, our analyst indicator could go a heck of a lot higher than that. Your profit on a mere $6,000 investment would be upwards of $60,000. Jesus, that's my mortgage, man. Exactly, you could pay off your mortgage. This stock will pay off my house. John, one thing I can promise you, even in this market, is that I never ask my clients to judge me on my winners. I ask them to judge me on my losers because I have so few. And in the case of Aerotine, based on every technical factor out there, John, we are looking at a grand slam home run. Four thousand—that'd be forty thousand shares, John. 
Let me lock in that trade right now and get back to you with my secretary with an exact confirmation. Sound good, John? Great. Hey, John, thank you for your vote of confidence, and welcome to the Investor Center. Bye-bye. So how realistic is that? So that in the old days was very realistic. He used that to become a millionaire. That's exactly the script he used. He's even written books about it. That's what he did. That's wow. how he did it. So yeah, that's very realistic. That's super realistic. And there's and that's what gives telemarketers and phone salespeople a bad name, right? That's what mm-hmm. gives insight or now they instead of calling it telemarketing, they call it inside sales because they're trying to make it more professional, right? But yeah, that's what gives salespeople a bad name is because they make lot they they say stuff that's not true. And that's the first problem. Everything he did though was good. He got the person excited. He mm-hmm. connected to the person's sense of wanting to be an insider. He used the scarcity model and scarcity always works when you when there's a limited supply of something and other people are having it, you want it too. So all these things he did were fine, except for he was lying with it. If you would have done it without lying, it would have been a great sales process. But he did it he had to lie to do it. He had to make guarantees he couldn't back up, which is a lie. Yeah, so there's you know there's that very clear line where you're lying. You're not trying to help the customer. You're really trying to help yourself. Exactly. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So he's being, um, he's being a con man instead of a salesman. And that's where most people think, Oh, sales is just conning people out of their money or trying to get them to part with their money. And really no sales is about helping and fraud and conning is about lying to people to get what you want. And so that's where the, the very clear line is. Once you have to lie to make a sale, you're not selling anymore. So it, it seems to me, Mario, that the actual sales techniques we've been talking about are really neither good nor bad. Uh, lying, to me, is not a sales technique. Um, you know, it's just yeah. lying. Uh, and, a, and a lot has to do between the intention or, or, or the uh, character of, of the person who's working with you. Are they trying to help you? or help yourself. So I think that's cleared up for me a lot of the perceptions or misperceptions of, of salespeople. So. Yeah, no, that's 100% true. It's all about your mindset and your intention, just like you mentioned. If you have the idea and the mindset that your job is to help people, then you'll do whatever it takes to help people. And on top of that, if you really believe your product can change someone's life, then you're not living to your own true values if you don't tell people about it. Because if you really... <laughs> I like that. If you, can, if you really think you can help them, then yeah. what are you doing shutting your mouth, right? You have yeah. to open your mouth. And so it almost goes to the extreme. If the salesperson isn't excited about their product, then there's something wrong with the product. If they're right. not trying to get people convinced, then they obviously don't believe in their product, and so maybe you shouldn't be working with them. So the, the idea is you want to be as proactive as you can. You, still, you don't want to be what they would call pushy, but, yeah, you do need to challenge people. Because if you don't challenge someone, they're always going to do the same thing they've always done. And then they'll always get what they've always got because they won't be changing. Sales is about change. It's about transformation. It's about getting from one level to the next. And it just depends on your intention of how you get people to do that. I like that. It's about transformation. So, Mario, it's, it's been a real treat uh, to talk to you and, and learn uh, from your expertise in sales. Uh, are there any updates or things you're working on that you'd like to share with our audience? Shoot, I wish there was. No, I'm just still writing a little bit every day. Okay. I've, I recently started writing for Thrive Global, and I like writing for that blog post as well. Um, 
But mostly what I do is I still follow a few sales trainers and people that I think can help the industry a lot. One is I watch a, a video of his every day on YouTube called, his name is Victor Antonio. Okay. And I think he's a very ethical and honest sales trainer, along with, of course, the daily sales blog by Anthony Inarino. The work by Jeb Blount is really good or Mark Hunter or especially Mike Weinberg. Those are some of the best sales trainers you can follow. But and also Russell Brunson has a, has a really clear and compelling message for people. His books, um, but there's yeah, there's just as long as you find mentors out there that can help you, then you can learn and be reminded daily. And so it's that constant daily reminder allows you to then practice what you already know to be true. And just by being reminded daily and then practicing daily, you can become a better version of yourself. And that's I think what I'm trying to do, and I think what most of us are trying to do. Great. Thank you, Mario, for your insights and uh, being a guest on Why It Works. All right. Thank you very much. Very appreciate, uh, very appreciative of your time, and thanks for, for the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joquan Joe Coaching, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit joquanjo.com. And stay tuned for our next Why It Works adventure.